uh, I have prepared a, a, a paper that's way too long to be read out in its entirety, so it's, it's always difficult to decide what to leave in and what to leave out. Uh, there will may be some, some gaps, you know, in, in my presentation because I leave some things out, but I hope it's, it's not incomprehensible because of that, uh, my main argument at least. Um, as you know from the abstract, um, this is going to be about um, uh, what happened in Norway on July 22nd last summer um, and uh, the perpetrator Anders Bering Breivik who has been mentioned frequently here yesterday. So I just take it that you are all familiar with the basic facts about what happened on that day. Um, I shall simply start though by um, referring to Breivik's self-understanding and what we have come to, to know about that. I'll start from there. Okay. One of the most striking features of Breivik's self-understanding is his notion that he was entitled to harm to the harm done to his victims. He sees himself as having a license to kill them. No person in particular had given him such a right. He is not a soldier receiving orders from a superior officer. Rather, he grants himself the right, perceived as a political and moral duty, to carry out the killings. He does so according to a rhetoric of necessity. What has to be done, has to be done. Someone has to do it. Most people are either unwilling or unable to do it. Among those few possessing what it takes to do it, he stands <coughs> out as the person best equipped for reasons partly psychological, partly ideological. Presently, I am more interested in the ideological components than the psychological or characterological one, though I'll come back to that. Of course, it is the combination of the two, how they interact in this particular case, that makes for a full account of how such a perpetrator could do what he did and even feel proud about it. It is tempting, though perhaps futile, to ask which came first, attracting or leading to the other. Whether Breivik's personality and the particulars of his biography disposed him to seek for the wealth on Shaung that seemed an ideal counterpart to the former, or whether he is to be considered a person whose ideology actively fostered and formed, as it were, his personality, so as to produce an optimal fit between the two. Um, in my usage here, narratives of entitlement are developed in a certain kind of ideology. It would be oversimplified to say that a certain kind of people are drawn to such ideologies, to subscribing to them, or actively to draw up and help shape them, though I am prepared to claim that to a large extent we have to do with a case of elective affinity. Um, Breivik's manifest, this is this uh, 1500 pages that he sent out on the internet shortly prior to his terrorism attacks in, in Oslo and later at Utøya. Breivik's manifest makes it clear that one of his most important ideological influences um, 
is the writer Bat Yeor. I don't know if that's pronounced correctly. Bat Yeor. Uh, notion that Europe is about to become uh, Eurabia as a result of Muslim mass immigration. The principal claim is that the Muslim takeover is facilitated by the political elite, mainly made up of social democrats, and by the cultural Marxist intelligentsia, who since the end of the Second World War has been busy throwing scorn on the pride and purity of traditional Christian values. Breivik points to the first generation of the Frankfurt School, Horkheimer, Adorno, Marcuse, as a particularly influential case in point. Such obsessive concern with cultural self-criticism and self-doubt has brought about a weakening from within of Europe's preparedness to value, to cultivate and to to protect its spiritual identity and ethnic homogeneity. The elites responsible for this weakening in times of great historic drama and large-scale demographic shifts must be considered as traitors and should be dealt with accordingly. Breivik addresses the issue of how to eliminate the groups charged with cultural treason a number of times in his manifest. The following passage is typical, I quote, If we had executed, let's say, 100,000 Marxist intellectuals in Western Europe after World War II, and banned all form of Marxist doctrine, we could have prevented the creation of the anti-European hate ideology known as multiculturalism. It's absolutely essential that we, the cultural conservative patriots of Europe, do not repeat this mistake again. Patriotic militias must create and update execution lists containing the names of every single parliamentarian (coughs) journalist, NGO leader, board member, and university lecturer, professor, etc., who has supported and propagated multiculturalist doctrines. Uh, Note the essential components involved in this analysis. Something of supreme importance is threatened. The threat is posed from without by a rival other defined according to ethnic, religious, nationalist, racist, etc. criteria, and from within by groups who are considered traitors. Since what is jeopardized by this double threat is of supreme and irreplaceable value, extraordinary means must be applied to deal with the threat. To understand the full implications of this, the notion of securitization developed by the Copenhagen School in International Relations will be helpful. I shall not go into the the details there. Um, I'll just go on. Um, A crucial feature of ideologies in the sense intended here is that they thrive on fantasies of full or perfect being, differing from religion, which typically (coughs) emphasizes that there is something higher, transcendent, extra-mundane, that the human being by default stands opposed to. By contrast, ideologies articulate the promise that full and perfect being is attainable in mundane existence. Hence, they flatten out what, in an inalterable manner, is presented as transcendent in religious discourse. Religious objects are viewed as mediators, whereas ideological objects are perceived as the thing itself. In ideology, no distance is involved, save distance qua projection. The appropriation and protection of the sublime object designated as such by ideology is the path to security and safety. Uh, My point is that ideologies work through securitization in this sense. 
They revolve around and exploit the security-insecurity distinction, turning the distinction into a potent source for political mobilization, mobilization with the parallel goals of protecting the precious object, its purity, and fighting those held to pose a threat to it. Whatever aggression is unleashed against the latter will be considered legitimate as dictated by self-defense. Note the nature of the drama involved here. The two goals are instructively intertwined, a two-in-one, in that attacking the alleged threat is perceived as the only viable way to achieve protection of the object. To protect is to attack, or to attack is to protect, preemptively <coughs> if need be. We can see how easily this logic may function as a recipe for escalation. The higher the stakes, the more precious the object under threat, the more mighty the forces intent on its destruction, the more justified and extreme will be the countermeasures. In the cases of genocide carried out in Nazi Germany, in Rwanda and in Bosnia, the creation of a genocidal atmosphere where the actual translation of words into deeds comes to be perceived as only a matter of time, as inevitable waiting to happen, depends upon rendering common and deeply existentially shared the splitting and persecutory anxiety Melanie Klein originally had conceived intrasubjectively with respect to a distinct <coughs> individual. By contrast, what took place at Utøya was not part of genocide, and Breivik is no genocidaire. He is a mass murderer acting from ideological conviction and regarding his killings as justified by the severity of the threat his ideology portrays as presently posed by, among other, internal since ethnic Norwegian traitors. Though acting alone, Breivik in no way took himself to be alone so f as far as his operation motivating ideology is concerned. Indeed, he sees himself as a prominent member of the Knights Templar, a white patriotic cultural conservative organization focused on means and methods that are meaningful in regards to achieving true political change in regards to tearing down the multiculturalist regime, be it contemporary Britain or Norway. He is alone when he goes about physically undertaking his operation on July 22nd, having deliberately chosen to do the planning begun in 2002, logistics and actual attacks all on his own, mainly for tactical reasons, minimizing the risk that he be detected by intelligence and police. At the same time, however, he sees himself as a representative of the in-group held to be under attack. His actions are carried out for the sake of his own group, the collectivity he regards as defining his identity, his mission in life, indeed his very essence, European, Christian, male. What he does, he sees himself doing not as a private individual or loner, but as member of an avant-garde, a self-proclaimed elite, reflecting a diagnosis of contemporary European society that concludes that something dramatic has to be done and someone has to do it. This someone Breivik holds, with no one, as far as I know, telling him so, let alone commanding him, cannot be just anybody. The extraordinary nature of the situation at hand, and so the task at hand, takes an extraordinary agent, with only himself filling the bill. Yeah, it is important for my argument here that um, uh, references to, to first-person experiences 
with individuals later to be cast only in the third person plural. Uh, I have referred to how uh, Breivik, as a teenager, um, had a Norwegian, you know, Muslim as his closest friend. Um, that that these references not be dismissed as ad hominem. Um, individuals who voluntarily take upon themselves the task of saving their country or people or religious or the like, a cited cause, and who are ready to sacrifice their life in doing so, on closer scrutiny will invariably be found to embody a biographically based component of fit, understood as their unique contribution come disposition to feel attracted to, to the particular ideology in question. They feel made for the wealth unshown of the ideology, and likewise the ideology presents itself as made for each and every individual within the group. To create this quality of mutual fit, this magnetism with explosive powers once let loose in a carefully thought out and directed collective organic manner, is the task undertaken in the rhetoric of the leaders of great ideological movements. This is where you belong, this is what your position is in society is about. These are the tasks that give it meaning. Your group is your destiny. But to, to recall the collectivist logic characterizing ideologies that have successfully mobilized thousands to take part in mass killings is not to do justice to the specifics of the Breivik case. His is not the case of a person who is drawn into a mass movement or who opportunistically goes along with the majority or who arrives at an irresistible answer to the what is to be done question under the influence of charismatic leaders. To be sure, certain figures on the internet may have served the function of mentor, notably Fjordman, blogging for the gates of Vienna. Uh, but this is not comparable to someone being accepted into the inner circle of, say, Hitler, Stalin or Karadzic. Indeed, what marks out Breivik is his resolve, maintained for years, to withdraw from social life and from participa participation in group activities, at least in Norway, refusing to be part of a popular mass movement and holding those who are in contempt for their weakness and mediocrity, mediocrity their submitting to conformity echoes Nietzsche's Übermensch and may well have found superficial inspiration there. The philosoph philosophical issue this leads up to is what we are to think of such a person's ideology-based convictions. Breivik, that is, is convinced that he has got the political analysis right and that the vast majority has got it wrong. Moreover, his convictions help persuade him that he is morally in the right when he carries out his twin attacks in Oslo and at Utøya. And this is precisely what the sort of ideology his favors has to offer him. The self-righteousness of a martyr performing the actions a grand narrative of right and wrong, friend and foe, assures him are required at this point in an evolving historical drama. The fact that all those he encounters upon his arrest and imprisonment or psychiatric treatment are likely to condemn his actions is something for which he is well prepared. Rather than being a challenge to his moral position, <coughs> such anonymous condemnation and excommunication, he is not one of us, we would never do such things, lock him up and never set him free, or alternatively, he must be insane, only serve as confirmation that he is right. It proves to him that he is above the prevailing political doxa. What Breivik contemptuously refers to as political correctness, PC, and that the enduring spell cast by the latter is part of the problem. Wanting his twin operation to function as a spectacular wake-up call to the truth of multiculturalism, uh, 
namely its being doomed to fail, being tantamount to cultural suicide. Breivik is nonetheless realistic enough to realize that waking the Norwegian people up from its PC-induced slumber will take more than just one such operation. Um, no, there's a shift in my, my discussion here. Uh, a question I now pose. Um, are there philosophical models for this sort of reasoning, <coughs> for this type of conviction and the self-righteousness it gives rise to? I propose that there are, and that they can be found in Hegel. In his Phenomenology of Spirit, Hegel offers his portrait of what he calls the beautiful soul, that nobler kind of subjectivity which fades away inasmuch as it is empty of all objectivity and thus has no actuality of its own. In this shape, Hegel notes in his later work Elements of the Philosophy of Right, Subjectivity is empty of all ethical content in the way of rights, duties, and laws, and is accordingly evil. Here, Hegel goes on to explain, quote, It is no longer someone else's authority or assertion that counts, but the subject itself, i.e. its own conviction, which can alone make something good. The inadequacy of this is that everything is made to refer solely to conviction, and that there is no longer any right which has being in and for itself, a right for which this conviction would merely be a form. It is not, of course, a matter of indifference whether I do something from habit or custom, or because I am thoroughly persuaded of its truth. But objective truth is also different from my conviction, for the latter makes no distinction whatsoever between good and evil. Conviction always remains conviction, and the bad can only be that of which I am not convinced. While this point of view is that of a supreme instance which obliterates, obliterates good and evil, it at the same time acknowledges that it is subject to error, and to this extent it is brought down from its exalted position, and again becomes contingent and appears to deserve our respect. Hegel, unquote. Setting out his views on the freedom of public opinion later in that same work, this is now the philosophy of right, Hegel observes that, uh, quote, the elements in which views and their modes of expression as such become completed actions and attain actual existence um, is the intelligence, principles, and opinions of others. Consequently, this aspect of actions, i.e. their proper effect, and the danger they hold for individuals, society, and the state, likewise depends on the nature of this element. Just as a spark thrown onto a powder keg is far more dangerous than if it falls on solid ground, where it disappears without a great trace. Hegel, unquote. Breivik's withdrawal was multidimensional. He withdrew from ordinary social life, decided to avoid entering into relationships with girls, etc., for reasons that on one level seem perfectly rational. It served to reduce the risk that his plotting activities would become known to others. On the other hand, Breivik is known to have been extremely active on the internet, especially on a number of blogs where he could communicate with people all over the world, sharing his views. As we have seen, the ideological views in question assume the form of convictions. Breivik, taking himself to be smarter and better informed than virtually everybody else in Norway, 
knows what is really going on in the world. And even though the danger come doom of multiculturalism as promoted by the elites of society is playing itself out more and more in the open, ghettoization spreads in the big cities and so on, the problem is that the large majority completely misses out on what is happening in their midst. <coughs> it is not my purpose to discuss the truth value, or rather lack of such, of the sweeping claims about present-day multiculturalism made by Breivik and his favorite ideologues, such as Fjordman, Batyor, Robert Spencer and Daniel Pipes, or for that matter by well-known politicians on the far right. Instead, I shall draw on Hegel's observations to help us understand the exact nature of the type of discourse Breivik is pursuing. Hegel's critique of abstract morality and his concomitant dismissive portrait of the individual who prides himself on standing above the laws and customs of society, making his conscience the sole instance to consult in distinguishing right from wrong, go back to the earliest phases of his philosophy. He famously charges Kant and to some extent Fichte for advocating a notion of the moral point of view that is excessively individualistic, abstract and formalist, in effect rendering the standard for which the deliberating agent appeals for guidance empty of all specific content. Consequently, Hegel sets out to situate the ethical agent within his actual social life world, granting the institutions of the state pride of place for the concrete balancing of each individual's specific rights and duties taken as being complementary. Practical reason is a historically unfolding, communally anchored and collectively enacted process, contextualizing and offering specific directions to the individual's endeavor to find out what to do given the situation's characteristics. Moral perception, judgment and action are facilitated by the agent's specific location in structures of ongoing commitment to his social environment. His or her search for an answer to the question, what ought I to do, thus takes an outward-oriented direction as opposed to an introspective one. To act is to propose one's deed as this or that. Whether it is this or that that was done is not for the individual agent to decide. It can only be decided by reference to institutional norms and expectations, and so by recourse to genuinely social standards. Reason as such is not the prerogative of the freestanding, autonomous individual to be consulted as is were as part of his transcendental epistemic equipment qua subject, Kant. Rather, reason is a mundane, eminently historical, collective achievement and is as such embodied in the institutional structure within which the individual has his proper place. What is the relevance of Hegel's position for my discussion of the case of Breivik? Uh, vanity hypocrisy, sophistry, feeling above other people and beyond reach of the law, declaring contempt when confronted with the judgment of one's views and actions, be that judgment the whole society's anonymous rebuttal. These are so many characteristics of what Hegel identifies as evil. Though someone may object that the word evil is too strong, or that we can do perfectly without it, or that it only serves to demonize and so mystify the individual before us, for example in the frightening gestalt of a mass murderer. I for one concur with Hegel that evil is indeed the proper concept in such cases. <coughs> Although Hegel's analysis contains no portrait of the mindset and motivations of a mass murderer, 
what his portraits, including those given in his phenomenology, do succeed in helping us recognize it that there is such a thing as committing evil from the standpoint of a subjectivity gone amok. A subjectivity erecting its community negating, bonds and ties breaking, eccentric wealth unshowing, into a law that commands as well as condones the deed in question. Of course, one could also, or just as well, call such a person a fanatic and his whole elevated and seps absurd manner a sort of supreme arrogance. And indeed, Hegel includes these very characteristics into his full portrait of the sort of subjectivity we are talking about. <clears throat> In terms of epistemic analysis, the kind of individual we portray here thinks and acts in such a manner as to see himself and his actions as totally incorrigible by the rest of the world. Nothing that someone might tell him, inform him, propose to him, in terms of taking another look at things, pausing to digest newly <coughs> discovered aspects, will make him change his view of things, or change his mind about what is to be done. His avowed moral superiority is bought at the cost of first erecting, then upholding, more and more rigidly, compulsively, an absolute barrier between himself and others between his own increasingly idiosyncratic views and those of others. In short, he uses all his energy to perfect the take on the world peculiar to someone not capable of making an experience in the world in Adorno's Hegel-inspired sense of the term. He blocks himself off from the give-and-take dynamics of ordinary social, meaning intersubjective, communication. What results is loneliness, albeit of a deliberate, self-chosen kind. Such a person wouldn't call it such, but instead claim it as a privileged mode of being. To be blocked off from others is to be above them, to be superior, better, stronger. Having the strength it takes to be alone, to be prepared to go it alone and stand alone, whatever the consequences. <clears throat> In terms of psychological analysis, however, it is easy to see through this, or at least some of it. We see a person hailing self-sufficiency and faking invulnerability. A young man trying to immunize himself from pain, from disappointment and rejection at the hands of others. Fearing this to the extreme involved here means taking the move of declaring those others, capable as they are in real life of bringing pain <coughs> and rejection, null and void. Their views, their feelings, even what they experience as a direct result of what he does to against them are denied any meaning, any value whatsoever. To a large extent, this is a matter of sour grapes, or if you will, of envy. Melanie Klein rightly, rightly made envy a key category in her notion of the paranoid Jesuit position, position. And in Breivik's case, this is there is reason to believe that since he compared his own achievement in life unfavorably with others, relatives, classmates, friends, in the ambitious, status-driven social milieu he was born into, he at some point decided that what he couldn't achieve or match was to be deemed worthless. However, since the sheer act of making such a comparison involves the risk and subsequent pain of having the rival other come out on top, at least according to conventional standards, nothing less than a physical elimination of persons embodying the unfavorable comparison come contrast will do. The young people Breivik executed, to use his own word, at Utøya, 
I look upon. No, I'm sorry. I have to skip that. Sorry. Um, I go on. I shall bring my discussion to an end by returning to an earlier issue, and in doing so, by returning also to Hegelian <coughs> insights. Um, yeah. I also skipped right at the start um, my reference to the conclusion arrived at by, by these two Norwegian psychiatrists who, who, who drew up this report. Uh, so I, I have disputed also in, in public debates in, in Norway recently uh, their conclusion that, that Breivik is uh, uh, to be considered um, not accountable for, for his actions. Um, and therefore that he be sentenced to compulsory psychiatric treatment instead of serving a ordinary <coughs> prison sentence. So, so I, I have mentioned that, okay. Um, um, yeah, I, I have suggested that Breivik's actions rather are a case of deliberate evil doing and that he should be tried and punished accordingly. Uh, no. But is it really a matter of either or? Are insanity and evil diametrically opposed or mutually exclusive? Again, Hegel may prove helpful in our endeavor to come to terms with Breivik, or more precisely, with the connection between the actor and his actions. On Hegel's view, all action involves the implication of consequences and hence of meanings beyond what lies in the intention and consciousness of the agent. Hegel looks upon purely intentional moral theories, including Kant's, as utterly incomplete. That is due to their failure to recognize that all intentionality is incomplete, unable to anticipate and encompass the full train of consequences, unable through any sheer exertion of will to force the world to become a simple mirror of our purposes. According to Hegel's theory of the structure of action, action always involves a recoil, what he calls rückschlag, of consequences back upon their intention, the intentions of the actor. All action is a circle wherein our conscious purposes are projected outwards in a deed whose consequences in inevitably express something beyond what was intended. The deed therefore recoils back upon the purpose throwing it into question, exposing the disparity between its intended meaning and its actual outcome, destroying the actor by revealing the unavoidable guilt entailed by action, the inevitable distortion of what is willed through its very externalization and expression. This echoes Hegel's notion in his phenomenology that every attempt to gain recognition is bound to carry a series of ambiguities or double meanings. The most fundamental of which is that in order for the self to gain recognition, the intention, it must first of all come out of itself to enter the relation with another, it must act, and yet in this very process of externalization, it has lost itself. In short, action is an externalization which is always an alienation. Moral theories preoccupied with the purity of the actor's good intentions fail to do justice to the complexity and multidimensionality of human action. They lure us away from engagement in the external world and ignore the danger involved in the attitude of withdrawal into ourselves. According to Daniel Bertolt Bond's argument in his book Hegel's Theory of Madness, 
It is just this attitude which, on Hegel's view, becomes intensified in madness. For Hegel, any ethics of interiority is on the borderline of madness. It was a quote from Bertolt Bond. Madness, Bertolt Bond continues, is the most radical form of alienation, the extreme experience of decentered, self-divided existence. The intentionality of madness is displaced onto the purely subjective ideas of fantasies, where we attempt to leave behind the original center of existence, the external world, keeping it completely on the outside of our experience, precisely so as to evade the recoil back upon our intentions our, or fantasies of any objective consequences. Note that the notion of evil Bertolt Bonn attributes to Hegel is different from the notion we discussed above, quoting from a passage in Hegel's Philosophy of Right, where he connects his analysis with his portrait of the beautiful soul in the phenomenology of spirit. Approaching Hegel through a Freudian psychoanalysis, Bertolt Bond's project is to read Hegel as a critic of an ethics of sheer interiority, which, when internalized, results in an ultimately destructive narcissism that borders on madness. As a quote from Bertolt Bond again. By contrast, evil for Hegel means finitude, incompletion, and disunity. Nature is evil for Hegel, argues Bertolt Bond, because nature awaits the awakening of consciousness, the educational culture of spirit, to complete it. Given this understanding of evil, guilt for Hegel, Bertolt Bond goes on to argue, is an inescapable ontological feature of human existence, our being grounded in nature and hence our being eternally subject to incompleteness. In other words, in Hegel's view, guilt and evil are ontological terms, anticipating Heidegger's idea that human beings are guilty in the very basis of their being. Again, quote from Bertolt Bond. <coughs> Rather than being moralistic about the reality of evil and guilt in human existence, Hegel ontologizes both notions seeing them as inescapable structural conditions of human being. I am not convinced by this part of Bertolt Bond's account, and in particular I would dispute his parallelization of Hegel and Heidegger. Moreover, his account of Hegel's understanding of action is too individualistic. Though his downplaying of its com communal dimension is certainly consistent with Bertolt Bond's existentialist leanings. Be that as it may, for my present purposes, the important thing is to use Hegelian insights to come to grips with the relationship between actor and actions in the case of Breivik. What Hegel helps us see is the extent to which Breivik attempted to control something that cannot be controlled, not only by him but by any human actor in general. Interpreted through Hegel, Breivik emerges as a person obsessed with controlling the external as well as the his internal world. He systematically and over a period of at least nine years subjected himself to thorough measures and methods of self-discipline. He went about hardening himself in a manner reminiscent of Adorno's portrait of Nazi executioners. Quote Adorno, whoever is hard with himself earns the right to be hard with others as well and avenges himself for the pain whose manifestations he was not allowed to show and had to repress. 
Adorno, unquote. Killing off whatever may have been there originally, spontaneously, in terms of empathy, in terms of impulse and ability to identify with the suffering of others, is a standard requirement in such processes of hardening. Known from a number of ideologies justifying murder in cold blood, being essentially the same psychological process, regardless of the specific content of the ideology in question. Having done his online preparatory exercise by playing World of Warcraft on a daily, or rather nightly, basis for years, having psyched himself up on anabolic steroids, armed with a pistol and a rifle, and having stuffed a full-volume Wagner opera into his ears by way of a headset, not unlike Odysseus who ordered his men to plug their ears with wax so as not to hear and respond to the sirens Breivik made sure that he would not experience the objective consequences in the world outside him Breivik that is both tried to close himself off completely from any normal reciprocal exchange with the world and to which he projected his action and he simultaneously tried to take complete control over those consequences and, not least, the meaning they will carry in the future. He tried to control the latter by way of prediction, calculation, anticipation, all of which are, by the way, characteristics of fully intentional, rational actions in the normal sense of the word. Indeed, they fit the very definition of a scientific procedure. Being fully, one is almost tempted to say excessively, prepared for his own action in this way, Breivik could accomplish precisely what he came to Utøya to accomplish without at any time hesitating or wavering. This was made possible by exactly the double structure Hegel helps us apply to this case. His withdrawal to the interior, to his subjective ideas and fantasies, and his concomitant prevention of the consequences of his actions from having any impact on his preconceived plan as produced by his ideas and fantasies. This double blocking, closing off external reality by way of closing in on oneself amounts to solipsism. Attempting to control what cannot, in, princi in principle and for human actors generally, be controlled is not unique to Breivik. It is commonplace. Where he differs from most of us, is in his attempt to take this control to extremes. To attempt to do such a thing is not something that was imposed upon Breivik. It was his decision to do so, and likewise to see to it that everything he consequently did bore out and reinforced that decision. But while his decision was extreme, is it also to consider evil? Or is it rather to be considered a sign of madness? This being the question with which I started, we have come full circle. The answer towards which I have been working these last Hegel-inspired paragraphs is that there is a moment of truth to both positions. The actions Breivik, standing under no command and being completely on his own, decided to commit, clearly qualify as evil actions. And in freely decided to commit them, no matter the suffering involved, he just as clearly was an evil intending actor. But this is not to deny or to exclude the possibility that he also in some sense of the term be seen as mad, as becoming mad, as a direct 
consequence of enacting over years and more and more completely, compulsively, his own decision to turn his back on the sociology of human existence that alone makes it bearable and that in that sense is the best way to avoid madness understood as losing one's mind, losing one's way in the world. Hegel lets us identify the point at which evil doing and madness meet. Moreover, his perspective allows us to maintain that the evil at work in the agent's decision to commit the crime justifies the decision that he be considered responsible and be duly punished. Finally, following Hegel's account of the structure of an action, the price paid for Breivik's decision to withdraw from ordinary social life and from experiencing, sensing, feeling, interacting with external reality is not only paid by his all too real victims, but by himself as well. The cost of such double closure is to start regressing to the point where the evil done and the unwillingness to see it for its human reality and moral impact borders on madness. Thank you. Thank you very much for your extremely thought-provoking paper on this extremely important topic. Um, narratives, narratives of entitlement commonly occur when evil takes place, allowing evil making it more likely, or sometimes providing post-hoc attempts at justifications of evil acts. They're also commonplace in more everyday shabby treatment of people, um, for example, referring to the last paper in various um, modes of bullying. Um, these accounts of entitlement are often masked, sometimes behind a range of arguments purporting to provide some kind of reasonable justification, and they may take different forms. Some narratives of entitlement may, of course, on occasion be justified. For example, if someone is guilty of a criminal offence and I am a judge, I may feel entitled to deprive him or her of liberty for a period. So amongst the questions arising from this case are how exactly we understand any claim that Breivik's actions were evil and Breivik's own ideological views. I'm inclined very much to agree with um, Vetlazen that from what Breivik published on the internet, I cannot see any clear evidence of insanity. Vetlazen prov provides an extremely thought-provoking account of Breivik's evil, basing this on a Hegelian analysis that the evil lies in the extreme subjectivity of his thoughts, justifications and actions of this isolated person who acted alone. I've got several questions that I'd like to pose. Firstly, I'd be interested in a fuller account of what it is about this subjectivity that leads to evil. Is it an inherently flawed methodology, or is a conclusion based on subjective musings only evil if it also meets other criteria of evil? There are many, for example, who consider that quiet contemplation and the examination of conscience is a valuable route to moral enlightenment, although there are also examples where this can be distorted and float free of other morally relevant considerations, including feedback from others. Secondly, I'm interested in the question of Breivik's isolation. I understand that he was, for example, in contact with his sister relatively regularly and, of course, in contact with people over the internet. And one of the reasons why I'm interested in this question is because many people now have work lives and social lives which are conducted in large measure over the internet. So this is a, a, a bit that how we understand isolation with the use of internet technology is, a, is, is an interesting and pressing question in many contexts. 
Um, secondly, he was isolated, he, I, would, I would argue, but he was not isolated also in another crucial sense, um, of course, but whatever you think of his manifest, he was in contact with a reasonably large body of scholarship and sources of reference from which he built up his case. In other words, he was not isolated from other sources of ideas. Um, and in this respect, he actually bears a certain resemblance to many academics. Um, um, I mean, fourthly, probably perhaps in a, um, in a, it's a disagreement with a Hegelian analysis, um, arguably his views were not entirely subjective in that he did attempt to argue a case using arguments that take a recognisable form, many of which are exact parallels with arguments used by people in this room, for instance, in various places. Um, I'd like to look briefly at some of these, and perhaps it's a suggestion for a different philosophical model for understanding his reasoning, which is perhaps not competing, but an, perhaps an alternative or complementary way of looking at, at what Breivik, um, at how he thought he was entitled. I mean, before briefly considering his narratives of entitlement, um, I'd just like to note that he does attempt to produce statistics purporting to demonstrate the disaster that he thinks will occur with an Islamic takeover of Europe. Now, um, I'll put to one side, as you did, the truth value of, of these, since I'm concerned with the type of argument that Breivik is producing. Um, although, I mean, of course, it may well be a large source of the evil of his acts that he, that he thinks that these, that these statistics and things that he's referring to of the case. But however much he argues for the rights of a patriarchal European <coughs> Christian culture, he does so in an overtly concrete way um, by amassing a body of purported statistics relating to concrete things such as alleged loss of life, alleged rape, and other atrocities, which he uses centrally in his attempt to justify his actions, which he then trades off against other loss of life. Um, so, of course, this may be totally factitious or false, but it's how he tries to argue and how he tries to shore up the justifications for his actions, rather, for example, pitting more abstract notions of different cultures being superior to others, although that may be a, a narrative that he has in addition. Um, he, and he certainly sees himself to, entitled to act as he does, and this may well, in fact, stem from some mental disorder or delusion, but he does also provide arguments for this position, for example, citing a number of political philosophers, including Locke, on the right to revolution. He may be wrong, but I don't think that in doing so he's mad or necessarily irrational in the sense of not giving reasons. Um, narratives of entitlement usually label all members of a certain group as bad or good and meriting, therefore, appropriate moral judgment and treatment simply by virtue of group membership based on characteristics outside of a person's control. And as such, they seem to be inherently unjustifiable. But in the pages of his manifest, I don't know what went on in his mind, but in the pages of his manifest, Breivik is actually at pains to avoid labelling groups in this way. And he, in fact, labels as evil any ideology that he thinks does so. He states, for example, that decisions about whether or not certain members of certain groups are traitors should be decided on a case-by-case -case basis. Um, so you labelled yourself as a feminist. It should be decided on a case-by-case -case basis whether feminists count as traitors. Um, those who, whom, whom he considers as culpable are those whom he considers have acted in certain ways or condoned actions or held certain beliefs. And he widens this class quite considerably, but he does so by, for example, citing John Stuart Mill as a source for considering that allowing death is as bad as actively killing. In other words, he is producing reasoned argument, which in itself, I, mean, I think he's 
it doesn't, it doesn't in any way smack of insanity. He's producing reasoned arguments. You might think that he's going to a false conclusion, but it's not insane. It's, as well as considering at great and tedious length who might class as traitors, I believe there are probably several Category B traitors in this room, and what treatment they deserve, which would firmly count as a narrative of entitlement, it's a narrative of a type that in other cases might be justified, since it's based on acquired attributes and actions, not on inherent qualities. Compare, for example, arguments of entitlement to attack those who might report a resistance fighter to the Nazis. It's based on acquired characteristics and beliefs and actions. So I hesitate to, I mean, I, I, I'm not justifying him. I just feel slightly awkward about this because there's no way in which I'm justifying him, just seeing that he has got reasons. And so, but, so in addition to this narrative, he also considers directly at various points in his manifest whether or not the innocent might have to die. So this, again, is a different type of argument. You might desire some people deserve death. In other cases, it might be the innocent who might have to die. And this in itself is not ipso facto evidence of madness, and on some accounts of evil, it's not even necessarily evil. We perform such calculations, for example, in relation to large works of civil engineering, road safety, etc. Um, indeed, consequentialists often argue that one should trade a smaller number of lives off against a larger number of lives, and also that individuals should have the courage to take such actions themselves, rather than worry about things like conventional morality or the self-indulgent promptings of some high-minded integrity. So on this analysis, Breivik saw himself, to use Bernard Williams' well-known example, as Jim taking the courageous decision to shoot the Indian or having the guts to put, push the fat man off the bridge. In other words, on one analysis, Breivik simply performed a utilitarian calculus, and where he went wrong then was in one of several places, getting the calculation wrong, um, the reasoning and evidence he used to come to his assessment that lives were going to be lost in the long term if he did nothing, um, deciding that his first course of action was to massacre rather than use argument, um, or perhaps in being a utilitarian, in considering it's ever correct to trade lives off against the other. So on one analysis, you might think that the source of Breivik's evil was simply that he had used utilitarian reasoning. <laughs> I'm being serious, you might think. <laughs> okay. So, okay. Thank you very much. <clears throat> yeah, thank you. Uh, you asked at first what what about uh, Breivik's subjectivity uh, leads to evil. Uh, Hegel was talking about a pure subjectivity or, or self-sufficient subjectivity or even subjectivity run amok. And what he means by that is is this lack of any interest to take part in exchange with others. Uh, now, of course, in, in this concrete case of, of Breivik as, as author of this manifesto, wherein, of course, uh, large parts, as many as 10 pages, uh, are, all, um, are, are taken from, from others. They are quotations without quotation marks, you know. Um, in, this, in this text, uh, Breivik is, of course, um, uh, citing others or with or without giving their names. Uh, so um, he is not 
uh, completely alone or or eccentric or idiosyncratic. Uh, he he has read a number of authors, and uh, his his view of things, um, the situation in society, what needs to be done, and so on, uh, is is clearly influenced by by these uh, sources. And and I at one point also called this a kind of discourse. And of course. When you have discourse, uh, you don't have something that's completely solipsistic or, or that only has one participant, <coughs> so, so to speak. Uh, so, um, what I'm getting at here, and I, I'm afraid that you sort of seem to miss that um, at the end here. My last paragraph was, was the most important one. Perhaps it was too, too short. Um, what I'm getting at is that there is um, a process to this. Uh, Breivik starts out, he says, in 2002, um, drawing up systematic plans to commit such, such an action at, at some point, and it turned out it took, took nine years you know, with planning to, to get there, and, and he decided early on to, to do this alone. Um, now, what I'm trying to describe here is that he pays a certain price uh, for not closing off, not blocking um, human or social contact whatsoever. I mean, he, he, it, it's never a complete withdrawal. He stays with his mother and he, he has dinner with her and, and, and so on. Um, but the point is, when you know point to, to the internet, internet communication that is so, so typical also for many young people today, of course, is that what is significantly lacking in the kind of contacts that he, he uh, continues to have, um, what, what is lacking there is, is the possibility, or as he would see it, risk of contradiction. It's the risk of being repudiated or refuted. So uh, at one point, he, this seems to have been a rather deliberate decision on his part that he, he's not someone who wants to, <coughs> to send in a letter to, to an editor of, of the newspaper uh, only to have uh, other people coming out the next day uh, answering him by way of contradicting him uh, and saying that he's got it wrong or he's misusing statistics or whatever. He doesn't want to risk that kind of experience, so to speak, experience of negativity in that sense. So uh, he, he more and more systematically uh, only wants to be in, in the contacts that he does continue to have with people who think exactly like him. And if there is any sign that the, this other person, anonymous or name, does not think exactly like him on the matters important to him, then he will uh, you know, cease the contact. So that's the strategy. Uh, and uh, I think I, I could give examples that that are, so to speak, more well established in in in, in history. Yeah, just just very briefly, Ceausescu. Um, uh, you know this uh, Romanian leader, um, and one often says uh, with 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 like like tyrants, and they are relevant here in in, in the sense I'm getting at that. This is, this is a kind of dictator or, or tyrant uh, that has been able, through his powers, to, to perfect uh, this not having to engage with, with people who tell a different story. 
Um, and at, at some point during this process, it just strikes outsiders that this person is completely out of touch. That's what we say. And this, uh, even if I, when I dispute the conclusion of these first two Norwegian psychiatrists, I think that there's one thing they're saying that, that is really valid, and that is uh, he's living in a bubble. And, and the question is, will he ever sort of emerge from that bubble? And also narcissistically, so much depends for him on staying inside of that bubble, because what will happen to him if he sort of breaks out of it? What would uh, await him there? Okay. okay. Please. Uh, I very much agreed both with the paper and the commentary. Uh, but nevertheless, I came away with the sense that something is seriously askew. Now, it is undoubtedly very interesting to understand Brevik's motivation, and uh, I think uh, uh, you have done an excellent job, and I agree about largely everything. But what is askew is that what we are mainly interested in, I take it, is not Brevik, mm. but in the evil that he has done. And an enormous proportion of the evil that he has done has to do with the victims. And so the discussions of evil generally take this strand. We, we, we find that evil has been done, mm. And then we start thinking about the evildoer. Mm. Uh, it is a very important redressing of this direction mm. to think about uh, the victims. Mm. So it would be just as interesting mm. to tell a long story about the inter interrupted lives of the kids who were killed. I, I agree. I mean, I have tried in my earlier work on, on evil to, to pay just as much attention to the perspective of the victims as of the perpetrators, so, uh, and also to explain occurrences of large-scale evil. One, one has to take equally into account um, all, all parties, not that the victims have responsibility for what happens, but one has to take account into account their, their perspectives as well as that of bystanders uh, all along the way. Um, I, I guess that that would, that would of course have been a completely different paper, you know, uh, a different topic in a way to, to view Breivik's actions from, from the standpoint of, of the victims. And um, it's very interesting to see, now it's, it's you know, today it's, it's six months since this happened and uh, one can see that um, the victims um, really react very individually, you know, um, even as far as this conclusion from the psychiatrists is concerned. Um, there is no unanimous view on that among the victims. It seems to be more like 50-50, you know. Um, the group that, that simply accepts that and says we, we have to settle with that, he was insane, period. And, and the group that says that no, that's just completely contraintuitive. And 
there was nothing in, in his actions that, and, and the way we, we witnessed what he did. Some of these people were also shot, you know, but they still survived. There was nothing there that, that, that really uh, showed that he was insane. And, you know, they would say things like, I have never seen someone in more control. I have never seen someone um, more calm in these extraordinary circumstances, more deliberate in, 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 and so on. So, I mean, it's also interesting with, with regard to, to rationality. Um, what is rational? I mean, if you said this, this was ir irrational, yeah, perhaps you can say that as part of the moral condemnation. But one could also say, I mean, drawing on Horkheimer and Adorno, that, that this is a sort of showpiece of a certain kind of strategic instrumental rationality. That he's only concentrating on the efficacy of his means, and he has no concern at all for the ends and, and the human and moral impacts of the ends to which these means are employed. And that kind of narrow rationality is certainly there, and, and one can say that it's it can be utterly immoral in its consequences. Um, Alan, please. Yes. Uh, I, you'll forgive me, I'm totally ignorant because I haven't read all 1,100 pages. Um, so I, I just have a strictly factual question. Does he describe <coughs> Israel, would he consider himself a Zionist, or would he find his Israel any source of strength or, or, or a narrative of strength considering the weakness he associates with multicultural, that is, Muslim, Europe. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, would you repeat the question? It was blocked by something. I just wanted to know if Breivik considered himself a Zionist in his writings, whether he saw Israel as a source or an antidote for what he saw as the weakness of a multicultural, meaning Muslim, Europe. Thank you. And whether there's any discussion. No. Um, I mean, I, you're not alone there. I, I for one, have not read uh, all of these okay. 1,500 pages. Oh, so, he does, so he does mention Israel yeah. several points, actually. Yeah. I haven't read it all, but, no. but, but he does, he, 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 because he sees it as a, as, as, sorry to interrupt, yeah. he sees it as a source of, as, as, an, as, a, as, a, as, a, as an example of, because he wants to, wants, he wants to do to separate culture, so he's, he sees it as a so miracle. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, what, what I can say is that there, there was one event that seems to have been instrumental to the kind of course that he was to take in, on, on politics in general, mm -hmm. and that was NATO's bombing of, of, of Serbia over, over Kosovo in 1999. And he also, um, uh, perhaps he's only bragging there, but he, he says that he has had meetings with, with Serb um, you know, suspects on, on the run. Uh, so he, he um, at that point, he, he really decided that, um, that, that Europe and, and NATO and, and the state and, and everybody who took part in that operation against uh, Milosevic uh, showed, you know, their, their failure when it comes to multiculturalism and that, that didn't see that the threat uh, in the Balkans was, of course, coming from, from, the, from the Muslims having a sort of stronghold there in Central Europe and then uh, falsely you know, uh, attacking the, the Serbs who, according to, to Breivik, were really uh, trying desperately and, as it were, eventually pretty much alone to stand up against this danger of multiculturalism. Yes, um, I'm interested, like you, in the psychiatric question of Breivik. Yeah. I was surprised that uh, the psychiatrist initially decided he was psychotic or, or insane, or whatever the phrase word was. 
because like you, I think that uh, if you're going to look at it psychiatrically, the best classification seems to be some sort of personality disorder, like a narcissistic one, as a first guess. And of course, we have to take on board the fact that were Braley to be told all this, and he probably was, he would say, ah, oh, well, here are these second-rate, mundane little psychiatrists who can't cope with my insights and my greatness and who resort to psychological explanations of me rather than take my arguments on board and rather than take on board the, uh, the yeah. great things I'm saying. Yeah. Which leads me to ask, well, okay, well, let's take a very charitable view of this. Let's imagine how a, a maximally charitable, ideal dialogue would go with Breivik. Um, not just psychiatric, but say a political one as well. Okay, so if Breivik gets a chance to put his case, he's done it on the internet, Okay, okay, well, let's take seriously the idea there is this multiculturalist threat to society. Let's look at the evidence for this. Let me see whether Breivik is prepared to accept his views as being falsifiable, at least mm. in principle, mm. as you say they weren't. If he finds out, if he just dismisses and doesn't listen to people who disagree, or he dismiss, or comes up with some psychological explanation for them, mm. for their views, we'll say, well, he's not being psychotic, he's just being very ordinarily irrational and bigoted. He's living in a bubble, mm. as so many people do. I mean, that's a very mm. good description. Mm. People live in a bubble. They, mm. they find psychological, maybe unconscious strategies for protecting their self-esteem or mm. something in some way mm. by explaining away evidence that goes against their own yeah. view of themselves as great yeah. or as rational. That, again, is not psychosis. It's, it's, it's ordinary bias, irrationality, mm. moral stupidity, mm. if you like. Yeah. And then, 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 again, the dialogue might say, okay, suppose all this is true, suppose he's quite right that there's some enormous threat we've ignored, we've ignored this Muslim threat, what will be the appropriate action to take? Mm. Would it follow from that that you should kill, as John Paul brings to our mind, innocent children, innocent teenagers yeah. on an island? I mean, just exactly how does the reasoning go? Yeah. And then you just, you might get him just to be very, you know, to stay, you know, is he really being a sort of utilitarian, as it were? Um, you know, you're, you're acting for the greater good. And then it is, again, I mean, how we reply to that might determine how we think of him psychiatrically, but I'm inclined to agree with you. This is some sort of personality disorder, some sort of uh, uh, massive irrationality and, and hatred, which is entirely compatible with, with um, psychological sanity. Hmm. Yeah. Um. You see, it uh, just struck me that, perhaps I'll mention that, that <coughs> when Breivik first met with these two psychiatrists, he had prepared a list of nine questions to ask to them. Um, and we have seen this list. And the first question was uh, how, what position they would take on, 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 on Marxism. And the second question, uh, where their... Uh, what would they vote? Were they social democrats? And uh, and he had that sort of questions for them. And of course, they just dismissed that, so they, they never answered. Uh, but that, what was significant about mentioning this is that the stance he took from the very first moment was that of superiority, mm. arrogance, yeah. and 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 it was like he behaved like that. They uh, they asked just the kind of questions from him that that he was prepared for. And they were, of course, not willing to, to answer his questions to them and so on. And so he just made the point that he, he had sort of anticipated this whole procedure. He also told them that he had read about 3,000 pages on psychiatry prior to his, uh, his terrorist attacks, you know, just to prepare for, for all the stages that would come after being arrested, so so everything was anticipated in that sense, and it's this, it's the same point that I, I tried to make in the paper. You know that that he's just someone who has 
settled very rigidly about what things mean, what will come to pass, and so on. And, and there is no possibility that, that anybody can, can do or say something that will make him change his mind or his views on this. So it's, it's very rigid. Uh, no, uh, Paula, I didn't take up that challenge that Paula brought, that she said that in his manifesto he's, he's giving reasons. Um, yes, he's giving reasons in, in one sense that there is this threat and we have to do something about them. And, and he, he quotes uh, statistics and so on. So you can say he's giving reasons or he's quoting other authors' reasons. Uh, but, um, I mean, there is one point at which that sort of stops. Uh, and that is about giving reasons for what he actually does at Utøya. He's not citing anybody that provides him with reasons for, for this kind of action. And also the response by, say, this blogger Fjordman, uh, which I think is, is sincere on one level, is that, okay, um, I am anti-multiculturalism. I can grant that, that Breivik has been ideologically inspired by, by some of my stuff on, on, on the gates of Vienna. But at no point did I even remotely suggest this kind of action, killing youngsters. Uh, so, so there is no reason giving when it comes to why we're talking about Breivik at all, and that's because of his actions. There are thousands of people out there sharing these views, being anti-Islamist or, or whatever, of course. The only way, reason we, we dwell on Breivik here today are his actions. Um, I had time, I, I thank you, I was enormously persuaded and, and agree with, with huge elements of both the, the, the paper and the responses. Um, I w I'm interested in unpacking some of the elements that, that make up these narratives of entitlement. And I wonder if you could comment on, um, there are so many things I'd like to ask, but I'm going to transfer to one or two. One is that one of the overwhelming elements, it seems to me, is, is a, a very important form of epistemic arrogance. Yeah. Right? You just talked about arrogance. Yeah. And the sociologist Michael Bauman has a paper called Rational Fundamentalism, yeah. um, in which he talks about how actually what fundamentalists do is quite rational, given mm. motives of sort of narcissism and insecurity, right? which is mm. they depend upon certain epistemic authorities mm. um, and appear very unaware of either the trustworthiness of those epistemic authorities or of their own condition of epistemic dependence on them. But these authorities are utilised to fuel conviction and so on and so forth. Now that seems quite implicated in some of what you're saying, but I wonder if that's the kind of analysis you want to deploy. That's one element of the, the entitlement. Very quickly on the other one, I also wonder if a lot of the emphasis of what you say is, is very much on um, Breivik's sort of narcissism and sense of what he's doing is great. I wonder if also there are important narratives of kind of de-agentification or de-responsibility. So for example, in a lot of genocides there are narratives of you know, historical necessity, yeah. um, inevitable clashes between classes, inevitable clashes between groups. I'm not really responsible, this is just part of a grand historical yeah. sweep. So I just wonder if you could comment on those two elements. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, did you say Michael Baumann? Yeah. Was that one rationalist fundament fundamentalism? Uh, I'm, I'm not aware of his, his work, but uh, yeah, I think that's, that's relevant for what I tried to say here about this epistemic arrogance, that you, you can find that among you know, fanatics, that they, they have this whole rationalist, you know, they have an explanation for everything. Uh, so, I mean, what's, 
what's conspicuous by by absence there to take it from Adorno again would be that there is no balancing of rationalist convictions or ideas or views on the one hand uh, with engaging you know uh, bodily sensuously through feelings mm. with the world and with sort of the real world consequences of acting upon these first mentioned ideals so so there's a kind of 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 of, of lack of relationship or 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 engagement with 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 the world as something that's that's real out there and that's not only a part of my my construction in a way um no uh, the second point you raise um um the necessity and that's that's right i mean uh, in the third part of uh, hannah arendt's the origins of totalitarianism she very much stresses this this sort of idealist uh, logic uh, that allows for no compromises in 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 nazism and in, in stalinism um, that um, the war between the classes or or the war between the races um, um, have to do with necessity and and even even executors of the kulaks you know the class find or or executioners of of, of the jews um, are only taking themselves to be sort of means in this great historical drama so so it's it's a question even if 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 the ss officer is granting himself uh, full moral status. I mean, perhaps Nazi ideology is, is nihilistic, also in this internal sense that mm. that and um, that's you know that's Hitler's testament. That was his last speech. That um, he went in for this self-destruction. You know, and, and and many people would see that that's that's just a logical consequence that it was leading up to all, all along the way. Uh, so so that's clearly something else that that Breivik is up to. He's um, he's not seeing himself as someone enacting a drama that's deterministic and that's heavily collectivist in this Arendtian sense of these genocidal ideologies, Nazism, Stalinism. On the contrary, um, he, he has this individualist stance there uh, and, and that brings in you know, the psychiatrist's notions and they are relevant to some point there, grandiosity, grandiosity and that he's a martyr and that he expects that in, in three or four decades, even in Norway, more and more people, especially men, he says, uh, will look upon him as, as a martyr. Um, we're not there yet, but we will, we, will, we will get there. That's his expectation. Okay, thank you very much. We'll take the last question uh, during lunch, okay? okay.